Hi, this is Steve Hargadon in WellConversations.net and the Future of Education. I'm joined by Teresa Beffa, Conversation.net's co-host. Hi, Terry. Hi. Hello. Glad to, glad to have you here. And we are joined by a special guest tonight, Tara Hunt, author of The Woofy Factor. It is Tuesday, February 2nd, 2010. Welcome, Tara. Do we leave you? Tara? Yeah, 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 I'm here. Sorry, I okay. have to click my microphone on. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. I can't tell you. I'm, I'm going to turn my webcam on. I meant to do that earlier, but I'm going to, and Terry, you don't need to turn your webcam on. I won't leave mine on. But I want to show you the copy of the, my copy of your book. It'll take just a second for that to come up. Okay. While we're doing that, I'll, I'll go to the next slide. Uh, Futureofeducation.com and uh, Conversations.net are sponsored by Illuminate. We appreciate that support. And my work project is LearnCentral.org, the free social network for educators with Illuminate baked in. So LearnCentral.org. If this is your first time with Illuminate, I want to show you um, how you can use the environment. Stuttering while the Logitech webcam software comes up. So. Um, tomorrow, James Paul G on video games. That should be a very popular show. He's uh, got a terrific voice on that. Uh, Thursday, Shell Israel. Uh, next uh, week, February 9th, Lisa Gillis on online high schools. Then Larry Johnson, Clay Shirky. I think that's next Thursday. Uh, David Seitman Garland. Then Dan Pink on the 17th. Online education on the 18th. Scott Rosenberg on March 2nd. Uh, Sharon Peters, 21st Century Skills, Tony Wagner, and of course, Sir Ken Robinson on March 30th, which is a blast. Okay, if this is your first time in Illuminate, this is an interactive environment, and you'll have the chance to participate both uh, through the features in Illuminate, and also if you'd like to grab the mic, you can do so by raising your hand, and I'll show you what that icon is. It's the um, larger hand with the green up arrow. Click on that to let us know you're interested in taking the mic. Uh, this is your participant window. You can see the others who are in the, set, the live session. This is being recorded. Um, if you go down here to the um, chat area, you can uh, send a message to the others in the room. You can make a comment, put in a link, make note of something that was of interest to you. You can also send private messages, but Tara, Teresa, and I actually see those. There's nothing fully private since we're moderators. And I'm going to give you access to the whiteboard right now. Those of you who are listening, click on the little wand with the red star and let us know where you're. You can also shout out in the chat. Again, a North America-centric crowd tonight. I think it was because I had trouble sending the bulk email out with the international time zones in it, and so I had to remove those. I think that knocked away some of our national audience. We do have Mexico, it looks like. Mexico City. Okay, so now I am going to that webcam going. Tara, I want to show you my copy of the book. Okay, France, sorry you're not seeing that, but sure glad to have you here. Well, Tara, Tara, are you in Canada? I am in Canada. 
I was going to say, you're representing at least. We've got three continents, four with France. Hey, not bad. So give me a smiley face when you can see me. I want to show you what the deal is here. Okay, good. Okay, so this is my copy of Tara's book. I'm hoping you can see the dog-eared pages. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that I filled the book with notes. Wow, that's a beautiful I crossed, thing. I, crossed, I know I crossed them out after I've put them into my Google Docs. <clears throat> but uh, Tara, this was just a phenomenally interesting book to me, and um, I actually was surprised at how many times I wrote "Wow" in the margins of the book. Are you hearing this from anybody else? You've got to be. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think everybody has. Uh, their own experience uh, of the book. It's it's always wonderful to hear from people that have the wow experience, and I and I do get those, and it reminds me of you know why I wrote the book in the first place, um, you know, so that you know, it connects with people and their experiences. And your wow, um, you can tell me whether this is true or not, but. Uh, your wow probably comes from me saying what you've already been feeling for some time. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, I looked back at my email and uh, found a message that Bob Carlton had sent introducing the two of us 18 months ago. And I thought, oh, I'm so sorry I didn't get to actually watch this unfold in real time. You know, we, you and I never connected, but, but oh, a joy that would have been. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's it's funny how these things uh, these things happen. And Bob is Bob is a smart guy. Yeah, he's a very smart guy. Okay, so uh, I, one of the funny things for me about this book is it actually ends up being kind of a book of lists. So I, I feel as though you did a, a really nice job of trying to organize some important thoughts and put them in lists. And, I'm, and as I go through the book, I, uh, I've tried to do the same thing, sort of keep it in, in list fashion. But before we go there, it feels to me like there's a little bit of an elephant in the room, and that's the title. So um, I notice that when I'm mentioning to people the book, I have to always say something after I say the Wolfie Factor. Like, the book is much more serious than it sounds. So why don't you explain why you chose Wolfie, and give us a sense of how uh, important you feel that is. Well, uh, to give you to to give you the absolute truth, I did not choose Wolfie. Uh, it was actually my editor's choice at uh, Crown Publishing. Uh, the original working title of the book was How to Be a Social Capitalist, uh, but he felt that it didn't actually give the book enough um, punch on the shelf, and I was, uh, you know, even. No, I'm you know, a big fan of the the concept. Uh, you know, a lot of my inspiration came from uh, Cory Doctorow's book, and just to back that up, uh, Cory Doctorow's book "Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom" is where the word Wolfie comes from. So, uh, so in in that book, you know, in the future, there's no no money anymore. Instead, there's this thing called Wolfie, which um, is 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 a currency, and you gain Wolfie by being nice, networked, or notable. Basically, in Corey's book, and he's ta he talks about this uh, the way that the future is set up 
the the characters gain or lose Woofy throughout the book based on how other people feel about them, basically. And when I uh, was reading Corey's book, it occurred to me that a lot of a lot of the um, a lot of the the, dis, the discussions that we were having around social capital um, really actually brought Corey's ideas to light. Um, and what he was talking about in Down on the Magic Kingdom was very, very uh, um, astute because what he was talking about was how we operate uh, in online communities today. And there was no wonder that Woofy was being used quite frequently in IRC rooms uh, and uh, Usenet groups as sort of a vote up on your confidence about somebody. So, uh, so I did. In, so I did include uh, uh, a story about Woofy in, in the opening chapter, and my uh, publisher basically said that is a terrific story in its. Uh, a terrific word. Let's call it the woofy factor. And uh, even though Corey is very open and very, uh, I guess uh, he does all the Creative Commons stuff. He's very he shares everything that he does. He doesn't charge you for using his ideas. I was a little nervous to uh, put it on the front cover of my book. Uh, and um, but what's really nice about having it on the front cover is almost instantly. People have gone out to find Corey's book, the original Down on the Magic Kingdom, read it for a better sense of context. So uh, it actually has helped, I think, uh, spread the word on his fantastic story as well. Well, it's very memorable. Well, I mean, it's, it's, not memorable. Be, um, it's not going to be uh, confused with anything else. As soon as you say Wolfie, it's easy to look up. So, uh, so I want to. Oh, could you mind turning your mic off just for a second, Eric? I'm getting there. Sure. So, uh, in my sort of uh, simplistic way, I drew a diagram that that Woofie was Woofie equals social capital, and that authenticity leads to relationships and connections, which lead to trust, which leads to social capital. Is that a fair kind of formula? Yeah, I think that it's a, it's a nice, uh, simple way to present it. Absolutely, I think it's uh, you know I think uh, I have a similar sort of formula that I use in early presentations on the subject with connections over time equals trust equals woofy. Basically, so you've you've uh, just added some uh, very important dimensions to it with authenticity. Okay, and I was uh, really struck by this quote you said, I find the more I give to the community in terms of my higher purpose by continuing to contribute to the growth of building blocks for independence and volunteering my time and expertise to help empower and inspire individuals, the more I get back in reputation, trust, and connections. It all leads to more opportunities and connections and a great deal of actual monetary capital. So I think you've experienced that. I definitely know in my life I've experienced that. But do you get some pushback from traditional organizations who say this is just fluff? Yeah, well, uh, that's actually funny that you should say that. Uh, that's probably, I mean, alongside the word woofy itself, which sounds 
kind of uh, fun and fluffy in its in itself, right? Uh, and why you need to follow up explaining the book with it's more serious than it sounds uh, is the idea that a lot of the concepts in this book are are fluffy, um, and they are. Like I'm I'm the first to admit that they're fluffy. It is but uh, I think, and this is a lot of the work that I'm doing now and on uh, on you know my second book. Hopefully, some someday it'll come out. <laughs> I've gotten a little sidetracked uh, with the startup now. Um, but is 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 what about values? Like what we do value, right? And and the thing is that there's this big gulf between what we see as you know traditional business strategy, traditional marketing strategy, uh, the way that business thinks and operates, and the way that online communities think and operate. And so, you know, it's 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 about time that business gets a little fluffier, in my opinion, right? So, uh, one of the examples that I love to give. Uh, you know, with my more recent work, is when somebody says things like, um, "Oh, well, yeah, there's a lot of uh, twitting, twittering of lunches on uh, Twitter, but um, there's some good stuff on there too." <laughs> and I, I think that's a sign of of the lack of understanding of what really is important to people in these uh, mediums, and what we do value. And no, maybe we don't value the lunch itself, but there's subtext in a lot of those tweets. And what I like to say is that if somebody is tweeting about their lunch, for instance, then they're probably trying to communicate something a lot deeper to you. You know, they're tweeting about maybe they're eating something vegetarian. So they're trying to say, listen, I'm vegetarian or I'm trying to eat healthy or um, I would really like to um, show my friends that my eating habits are improving. That sort of thing uh, is happening in the subtext. And a lot of, I think, uh, business approach to these social networks misses the importance of that, the human connections that come from the subtext of those quote unquote inane tweets that uh, that people talk about. I mean, like for instance the relevancy. <laughs> you see, you, hello? Sorry? Are you still there? Yeah. Uh, yeah. With like yeah. for yeah. instance the relevancy like, the relevancy, like people are, like, people are um, it's echoing in the background again. Oops. I think a lot of people are missing that subcontext of relevance as well. In in what way? Sorry, I, I'm not understanding the. Well, when you're talking about the the value and the the, mon the mundane comments that are out there, and people are not expressing, they're not really expressing what they want to be saying. With the example you gave with the vegetarian, um, it's relevant, but it, they're just not communicating in a way that everybody else think is relevant. Do you see that as a well, as an issue? Well, I don't. I don't know if that's necessarily the issue at all. I think the issue here is that they are communicating in uh, in the way that you would communicate 
with your friends. And 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 that is relevant in itself, right? Some people are direct, yeah. some people are indirect about uh, whether or not they're saying, I'm eating healthy. I, I think if you went on onto Twitter and you said, I'm a healthy eater, look at me, which is the, it's the subtext of the, I'm eating a, you know, a, a vegan burger, for instance. Uh, people would think of you as being a bit of a blowhard, but if you're talking about the vegan burger, they might imagine the vegan burger and understand that subtext. And this is the beautiful part of being human, and this is the beautiful thing that happens on these networks. And um, that's, that's where we're having a tough time uh, connecting with businesses you know, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Flickr, on any any sort of social network on our blogs. Uh, we're we're absolutely uh, missing each other. We're speaking a totally different language. And and the things that we value in these online communities are are the connections. It's, you know things like generosity. Um, what we were, what was referred to in the Wolfie Factor about giving and the higher purpose and giving to the community, is is a huge part of what online communities are all about, right? The the generosity is is connected directly to reciprocity, which in and reciprocity, um, and I think I quoted him throughout the book. Uh, Matt Ridley um, has shown as well as other social scientists have shown that reciprocity itself is a tie that binds these communities. So Tara, I didn't have any, I was, I guess I, I anticipated that others would see this potentially from a business perspective as fluffy, but for me it was very tangible, meaning somehow something has dramatically changed with social media, which by giving the audience a voice requires that the relationship between the, the provider or company become more authentic and that that's actually a huge benefit to the company themselves even though they may not see that right off the bat. Uh, well definitely um, authenticity is something that a lot of companies have a difficult time uh, embracing, right? That the whole section on embrace the chaos, uh, I think that's the subtext there, right? Is that you know, no longer can PR engines and uh, the, the image of this perfect company be uh, accepted. It's now about, you know, company, companies are, you know, much like human beings make mistakes and it's what you do with it after that point. Um, that really demonstrates to the world, you know, who you are, even if you are um, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And, you know, the, the inability for a lot of organizations to join in that, you know, the conversation that's going on. And I'll give a specific example here. Uh, that happened uh, earlier last year is uh, when um, Mint.com uh, published the uh, the uh, qualify your numbers legal letter on uh, TechCrunch from Intuit, and uh, at the time I was 
I, I was actually working at Intuit and people were asking well, what's happening, what's happening um, and knowing that I worked at Intuit, I came, came out and I said, I'm not sure, I'm checking into it. Meanwhile, uh, the PR team was trying to uh, come up with a really good statement to make Intuit look good coming out of this. And what happened is when they put that statement out there, everybody rejected it because it was, it was very legalese, very PR driven. It wasn't, you know, um, we didn't understand the new rules and we, we screwed up. There was none of that. And if they would have just said, boy, we really screwed this up, people would have liked Intuit a lot better in their response to that because it would have been more authentic. Well, I remember, you know, finding books in the 70s and 80s about honest business or uh, open businesses and kind of this, there was the little movement towards, you know, really sort of thoughtful economics that feels like it kind of disappeared, uh, you know, between then and now. But it's, you know, I definitely have the sense that the the medium, the social media are creating an environment in which there's much more of an opportunity for a company to say, okay, we're going to try something and you tell us if you like it. And if you don't, we won't do it. And if you do, we will do it. Versus let's come up with an idea, we'll market it. And even if it's not succeeding or a good idea, everybody's sort of um, dependent on that idea moving forward. And so it keeps moving forward. So uh, um, I, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm really appreciative of your bringing that out and, and think that, um, um, that the examples in the book and the way you describe it do a really good job of sort of giving a sense of uh, how important it is now for companies to see this as an opportunity. It definitely is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to actually uh, demonstrate that there are human beings that are working within a company and that um, they're listening as well, right? So uh, a company that, well, you know, and I'm going to back up for a little bit here. I mean, there's, there are definitely examples of companies that get away with this. Um, you know, for instance, and I think everybody, the one that comes to mind for everybody is Apple, right? So Apple is incredibly, um, incredibly secretive. Apple holds all their cards to the chest. They don't do the whole. They don't do any sort of like we're going to put something out there and get back feedback and then come out with the next version. They come out with you know the iPad after months and months of rumors and people are dazzled. I mean, I know, I know, I'm excited uh, to get one when I can afford it when it comes out, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, you know, they're really good at, at putting that stuff out. But the, you know, but Apple is Apple, right? They, um, they really haven't had a lot of, you know, dogs, I guess, uh, over the last couple of years. People have been, uh, you know, it's it's like they've they have some sort of um, time machine into the future that they can go to. Uh, consult the future and come back and design the product of the future. And um, I'm not sure if they made a deal with the devil or, or what they've done in order to be able to do that. But they're pretty consistent on that level. But the problem is, is a lot of companies see that and they think, well, we're Apple too, and we can do this. We can, we can, you know, be all secretive and then come out with this great thing, and everybody's going to be dazzled. And you know, it's just 
it's very it's a very rare thing for a company to be able to pull that off nowadays. So a much more certain strategy is definitely you know put out a, a small step and get feedback before you invest a whole lot of time and and money and uh, people's uh, heart and soul and hours into creating something that people will kind of look at uh, cockeyed, right? And so there's a huge advantage to that. You're saving money. You're innovating with your um, with your community. And one of my most favorite quotes of all time is, uh, and a friend of mine, Susan, who uh, runs Office Nomads up in Seattle had this posted on her desk and it, I don't know who the original person was that said it but it's it's uh, people will uh, promote what they help build and if you get your community um, of users behind you and what you're building, your community of customers, your friends, your family and they feel like they're invested in a project, at the end of the day they're going to help make sure that project is successful. So there's a much better strategy there, um, unless you're Apple, right, to be open and, uh, and transparent about what you're doing. Yeah, you know, I, I think that, bring, that brings up such a, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Steve. Go ahead. I was going to say that brings up a really good point. I love the, the part you brought about the background community. They're also adding value. And any, Nobody really talks bad about Apple, but if anybody does talk about it, you've, you're there, you're present, everybody around you has that big community, they're going to squash down anybody that's not on board. So kind of build, building your influence and your ambassadors. Yeah, well, yeah, Apple is a, is a very uh, strange example and kind of an anomaly, uh, but I talk a lot about Apple in the book, in the Creating Amazing Customer Experiences uh, section of the book where, um, you know, if you, if you think about uh, Cory Doctorow's concept and it's, you, you know, getting Wolfie by being nice, networked, and notable, and you were to be able to take um, any of those away and be left with one, um, it would be notable. So uh, I think, and Apple is that, is that company. They're ni not nice, they don't do very well, a lot of networking, but they certainly um, have made a name for themselves, being being very very no notable. So um, and oh, and um, as you just said, uh, they're really focused on the customer experience. Absolutely, it's that amazing customer experience. I can imagine how many prototypes uh, are thrown away at Apple before. They let something go through. It's. I think it's got to make everybody in the company um, jump up and down and go, "Wow!" Right. So, uh, so Apple is 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 an interesting example, but not the norm. Like, if you think you're going to be the next Apple, don't don't do it. Uh, design with your community in uh, in mind in step by step. Well, we could easily spend probably five hours talking about uh, many different aspects of the book, but I think it might be helpful for those who haven't read the book or are hearing this for the first time to kind of give a basic outline of, um, of, of the message of the book. And I, and I think that you use the principles that you uh, developed at RIA. Am I saying that correctly, RIA? Yeah, you're saying okay. that correctly, yeah. 
those as the outline of the book. So the first one is stop talking and start listening. I, that was really a, I mean, I thought that was a great way to start. And, uh, and, and I think you sort of give, you communicate through the book the value of people who point out problems to you. So do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, absolutely. Well, in you know the the five principles, which um, I don't know if we'll be going through them all, but I'll just quickly list them off. You know, stop talking, start listening. Become and the second one is become part of the community that you serve. Number three is create amazing customer experiences. Number four, embrace the chaos. And number five, find your higher purpose. And the five of them, I think, go in order. Um, and they're also from easy to most difficult, in my opinion. Um, so a lot of companies, I think this is, this is the message that they, this is sort of the gateway drug, I guess you could call it, the message that they need to uh, really understand the power of communities is the being able to listen to feedback. And then what do you do with the feedback is usually where they they stop and feel like you know, like deers in the headlight, right? So throughout uh, a big part of this uh, section was dedicated to like what do you do with different types of feedback, right? Negative feedback. How do you deal with uh, negative feedback, and what is constructive, and and what is um, what uh, we like to call online troll-like behavior. And troll-like behavior is just somebody saying, you're an idiot, or shut up, you're stupid, you know, that sort of thing. Like, what do you do with that type of behavior? And a lot of companies don't know how to react to that. And they'll take that stuff really to heart. And so I even, you know, take time to explain the concept of don't feed the trolls, right? The person that comes and, and spends a lot of time polluting um, a wiki or or leaving a lot of blog comments that are really just negative for the sake of being negative and not really good constructive feed feedback is you know not responding to that. But when there is good constructive feedback, even if it hurts, even if it's like, oh this is this is this is my baby and you're you're being negative about my baby because you know I I would say that um, probably most people that start a company. Um, you know that is that is it's like an it's like another child to them. I know I know for me any company that I've ever been invested in, I feel very personally in love with uh, that idea. But sometimes you have to be able to take the negative feedback and incorporate it um, to actually improve on it. Now there's also another type of feedback, which is that from um, expert users, right and the example that I give in the book by Koi Vin, uh, who designed the uh, original gorgeous New York Times uh, website, uh, is that he listened to the experts, right? He listened to those people that were really savvy web savvy web users and and you know got excited about their ideas. But then he made sure that he designed for those you know everyday. Um, not so savvy web users, so that they could still enjoy their New York New York Times experience. And so there's like all sorts of um, implications to how you implement feedback. It's not just about like, oh, hey, you know, here's our website or here's our product, 
and will take every piece of feedback and incorporate it, then you're going to end up with some sort of uh, muddled, over-featured stew, right? Instead, it's it's getting smarter about how you listen to that feedback and being able to uh, get um, get smarter about what people actually do want rather than necessarily what they're asking for. So your fifth principle, which people are, uh, a couple of people mentioned in the chat there, the finding your higher purpose. It, it, um, you finally gave me an opportunity to talk about one of my favorite movie scenes of all time, which is the miracle on 34th Street when the Santa Claus starts telling the customers what other stores carry the cheaper product. Have you seen that scene, and did, did that resonate with you? Um, you know, I uh, I'm really embarrassed to admit that I have not seen the whole movie. I've seen bits and pieces of the movie, and I like and I like classic films. Did you know um, uh, the who's the main character? What's what's his name? The uh, the actor that plays him. Oh, well, there's an old uh, version and a new version. Is it Baldwin? Baldwin? No, the old the old version, the classic version. Who's the guy that oh, he's I don't know. famous oh, actor? I don't know. Anyways, he's uh, he's just way too um, uh, earnest for me. <laughs> so I don't I don't watch many of his movies. <laughs> well, that's funny. But there's this well, great scene there's in there's the movie where they actually where he actually starts telling the parents of the kids, you know, where to go to get the products cheaper and of course, in the in the movie version of life, it turns out to be sort of brilliantly successful. Everybody's coming to the store because they're they're so helpful. Um, and I, I don't think we see a lot of that. But but I've, you mentioned Amazon, or I think you do during this. And I realized, you know, I really do trust Amazon, and I do feel like uh, they they point me to used books all the time that are cheaper, although they probably make a commission on that. Yeah, well, actually, I even you know, Amazon is great, and they do make a commission. But I think a really uh, brilliant, very higher purpose um, example, and one of my the darlings of the Woofy Factor is Zappos. And um, there's many, many stories circulating online that where Zappos, and this is part of their customer service policy, is you call up Zappos and you're like this pair of uh, shoes that I was looking for or this handbag or this dress that I was looking at on your site seems to be out of stock. When are you going to get back in stock? And the customer service person will look and be like, oh, well, we're not. looks like we don't have an order in for a while. But hey, look, at, I just found that same pair of shoes or that handbag or that dress over on this other website. Do you want me to send you the URL? And they don't get a commission from it. They don't get any sort of um, uh, kickback from doing that. They're just trying to help their customers. And that is the, you know, the similar story to the miracle on 34th Street where they come back, people co constantly come back to Zappos because of that action. So it does happen in real life. So that, I was, I was so interested that um, uh, that Ning is never actually mentioned in the book. Was there a reason you didn't mention Ning as a social network, or was it just not on your radar? Well, that's an interesting observation. Um, I guess uh, when I was writing the book, um, you know, it wasn't something that uh, I was using, and uh, um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's, there's, I have nothing against Ning. In particular, I just, I, I guess I, I've, I've set up, um, probably since the book came out, I set up one network on Ning, but haven't really uh, used it a lot. But I know a lot of people get um, quite a bit out of it and being able to create your own. I'm, I'm more of a WordPress girl, but that's only my, my personal, um, my personal choice. And now that they have BuddyPress, I, I tend to. Uh, let me tell you where I was going with that. Let me tell you where I was going. So Ning has what they call this double double viral model, and it's purely economic. That someone comes in, that they're in a network, and then they uh, would would start their own Ning network. And it seems to me that in your higher purpose section, you're you're actually talking about kind of a double viral model, but it's really not. Uh, uh, economic as much as it is, uh, you, you know, sort of gift or love. That the the moment that you can find a way to help others help others, that you've really tapped into a very powerful model. And and I love that. And did you do you have any good examples of that you would want to give? Yeah. So uh, yeah, and that's interesting how Ning is uh, set up like that for sure. Well, the example that I give in the book, um, uh, and one of you know one of my one of my favorite people in the whole wide world, Jane McGonigal, uh, creates these games to help people learn to be better people. Um, and she wouldn't maybe come out and, and say it like that, but uh, she's now working with the uh, Institute for the Future, and they, she puts together these exercises for people um, that you know everything from uh, uh, you know uh, cruel to be kind. This game where you kill it, you, you're you're an assassin and you have to assassinate people with kindness. <laughs> So you gain points by doing really nice things for people, but you know that's basically killing them with kindness. And uh, then she creates these like you know ways to think about these future um, potential awful disasters that are ha happening in the world. And you get together in teams and you think up new way new ways to look at the world and change the world and, and implement them in order to stop these awful disasters from happening. Um, and uh, Jane has spent her PhD thesis and now she dedicates her work and her life to these types of games. Where, you know, my son is in the other, new, other room playing probably um, uh, Halo or something where you shoot each other, right, online. Uh, Jane has spent a lot of time gathering a huge community of people and the reason that she gathers a huge community of people to do this is when people are doing nice things for one another and this is research that's been done, they feel happier and better uh, about the world they live in and better about themselves and they want to spread it so they, they get other people to join it. And so I like, I really, I really love what James is doing but you know, what else can we do? And as you say, a lot of do, people do this for an economic model, but, you know, how else can we build uh, companies and products and networks and that sort of thing that actually uh, help, you know, I think I call it spread love in the book, is help people become 
uh, better people, teach people properly. And this is a concept that we actually put into um, actually an educational camp that we did uh, about two years ago called Hero Camp. And the idea was to take this concept of spreading love and see if we could design some sort of gamer interaction for for teenagers um, when they're going through probably the cruelest time of their lives uh, and help them at that really definitive moment of, you know, turning into an adult. You know, I, I have the idea that actually being a nice person, doing good things for the community, volunteering, that sort of thing, actually uh, is cool, is the way to be, is the way that you want to be going into adult life. Um, but I really like to see somebody be able to make money off of doing something like that. I would really like to see good work um, rewarded. Uh, I think a lot of incentives today are backwards. So you talk about the gift economy and that those who perform the most favors and give the most gifts are often the most powerful. It, it occurred to me that there's an additional insight there as well, which is as you give gifts, you become more capable of giving, meaning as your influence grows, there are better gifts that you can give. And so it's, it's almost like it uh, accumulates in, an, um, in a pretty amazing way so that as you um, continue to be generous, you, you have more opportunities to be generous. And I'm guessing you found that in your own career. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, it's, it's uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm almost, I have an embarrassment of, I think, an embarrassment of wealth when it comes to not, not, you know, physical material goods, right? I have an embarrassment of wealth of of being able to um, influence um, people in a positive way. I think, and a lot of that has come from, you know, step by step, person by person, uh, bit by bit. Uh, I've been able to grow that um, influence by doing nice things for other people or or uh, contributing to community projects where I have no direct benefit from. Like you can't see that, you know, by me doing this, I'm going to get an award or by me doing this, I'm going to get paid, that sort of thing. That this, this, this contributing has led to me being able to be in like a in a life now i literally um i literally don't uh i like to laugh and say i don't work uh i i mean i work i i get to do everything that i love i get to i spend my days uh reading and and thinking and putting together um you know, hopefully the next big world-changing ideas, and I have the privilege to do that not because I come from a wealthy family, not because I've I sold a company for millions of dollars or billions of dollars, not because you know, and I know I have a certain amount of privilege um, being educated um, white Canadian and having a healthcare system now, um, but uh, but at the same time, like I. I get to do all of this stuff um, because of these steps over my lifetime of of 
giving and being generous to others to know I it's that reciprocity comes back and I get generosity back in spades and it's and it's amazing and the and even at this point if I give away uh so you know, people understand and recognize that if you know, if they asked me, a friend of mine was doing a really great um, charitable event a couple of weeks ago, and he asked me to post it to Facebook and post it to Twitter and that sort of thing, and I was more than happy to help him, and I helped him achieve his goal. So you know, down the road. Um, I can, yeah, you know, I know that when I need help, he's going to be there without me even having to ask him. And this sort of thing happens um, over and over again, right, down the down that path of generosity. So it's it's pretty amazing the power that you get. And it's but like uh, Spider-Man's uncle says uh, said to him, um, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, right? So uh, what are you going to use? The end of the, the, at the end of the day, it's not about the power of the influence. It's about what you do with it. And um, yeah, so um, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty fortunate at this point. And so I'm a, a test, I'm an attestant to my own, um, my own theories. Well, the best description I've uh, ever read of this was in a book called Greater Than Yourself, a little airplane book I read recently. And I think it was Steve Farber. And he talks about how when you, um, when you do sort of consciously spend your efforts giving to others, that you become trusted and that that trust carries with it an ability to give more. And I've loved that. Do you, do you know the Jewish folk tale of the long-handled spoons, Tara? Oh, but I would love to hear it. So the story goes that a, a guy is <clears throat> taken to heaven, or uh, I guess he's taken. To, he, wants, he wants to know about heaven and hell, so he's taken to hell first. And his guide shows him hell, and it's all of these people around a table that's um, uh, got luscious food, but they're um, uh, in their hands. They um, how does it work? They're they're <laughs> so the spoons are too long for them to actually be able to put them into their bowls to eat the food. So they're in a state of constant frustration. I should remember the story before I offer to tell it. So the hell is this place where the long-handled spoons mean that they can't actually get to the food in their bowl. And then he's taken to heaven, and it's the exact same spread, the feast on the table, and it's the exact same spoons, but the people are feeding each other. And they've understood that uh, by doing so, they'll actually have more food than they can possibly consume. Wonderful story. I'll have to remember that for sure. I'll have to look it up. Okay, so we're getting okay, short on so time. I definitely want to go into the embrace the chaos because that uh, that was for me was also you know a real significance there. And you tell the story of uh, JetBlue and Twitter, um, and the the uh, Morgan. I I don't know if we know more of her name than that, but Morgan uh, is very honest in her communications. She's allowed to be so. Now she becomes kind of her own brand, and I'm. I'm thinking that that might scare a lot of companies, that somebody becomes sort of known independent of the company. Um, and how important is that to the story? And, and are we becoming like professional athletes in a lot of ways, that we build up a brand and a reputation um, by doing these kinds of things, and that benefits the company we work for, but we may be somewhere else in five years? 
it's actually a, uh, a really uh, interesting and appropriate um, question. Well, one of the, the so the only the only way that this would actually become a problem is if the company itself didn't learn from those interactions. So uh, more recently, um, I've taken for Frank from Comcast Cares, and almost I think a lot of people know Frank. Um, he's the guy that stopped, started Comcast Cares on Twitter and started raising, I guess, the the bar on Comcast's customer service by making sure he was taking care of people's concerns as they were sort of tweeting that they were frustrated or waiting for Comcast or, you know, it was out again and they were just, they were upset. And um, I think he, he took initiative in the company to, um, to go forth and, and take care of this issue. And uh, so this became a hu huge headlines, right? You know, Comcast was all of a sudden uh, revered and you know, Frank revered within the company. Well, one of the things I took him to task with was, you know, Frank has become this, and the Comcast Cares brand has become the face of Comcast when Comcast itself didn't seem to change much. People were still getting on uh, Twitter and still having problems. So they were fixing problems for individuals on Twitter, but they weren't fixing the base problems that were leading to those uh, issues in the first place. And so, you know, and, and uh, I, so I started talking about it in um, a particular presentation I put together called Your Social Media Strategy Won't Save You, that there's a disconnect um, between, you know, what Frank is doing publicly and there's a sort of rah, rah, rah around look at how Twitter can be used for all this, this good for a company, but it really is Frank. Um, so if Frank was to leave Comcast, Comcast tomorrow, would, the, uh, would it be the same? Would, would, would Comcast, uh, they'd probably continue on uh, with the program, but would, you know, would uh, it continue to have the same heart without Frank there? Now, since then, I've talked to Frank because he saw my presentation and he took issue with it. Um, and we had a good conversation. And he said that um, he's he's working on taking the feedback and taking all of the you know the interactions that he's having with people outside of the company and through this brand that he's built. You know, he's I don't know how many gazillion followers he has, and he's been on in the New York Times and um, been quite popular. Uh, himself, but so he's taken uh, this uh, amazing brand and taken it in, into the company. So he's become kind of a customer advocate within the company to actually change things. So the problems that people are having over and over again are changing. Now whether or not that's going to change the, um, the actual heart and soul of the company is I'm still a little skeptical about that. And I think it's, it is problematic. It's not problematic that somebody with heart and soul like Frank gets out in front and ha tries to help people. I think that's awesome. I think what's problematic is that the company itself doesn't value that interaction enough to say, hey, look at that, look over there. Let's learn from that. Instead, uh, usually customers, companies' natural reactions to that is, hey, how can we exploit that? <laughs> you know, how can we make that people see, 
can we get some press from this, that sort of thing, rather than, oh, we see what's happening there. Boy, we have a lot to learn uh, from these interactions that, that Frank is having with people. And maybe we should rethink the culture of our company so that we can be more like Frank. But interestingly enough, Frank probably moves on just fine, right? Oh yeah, Frank would. I'm sure that I'm sure that Frank has already had multiple headhunters tracking him down and and offering him big amounts of money, and uh, for brands that he would probably have a lot less uh, trouble uh, barking up the corporate ladder uh, with in the first place. I mean, look at you know one of the early examples I think of this, and a person that's become way famous in his own right is Robert Scoble. To, uh, you know, he got powerful enough through his blog that Microsoft could not fire him for saying that Google was doing a better job of what they were supposed to be doing, and ended up leaving Microsoft. And they really haven't, uh, you know, they have, they still have some good people there, but um, they really haven't been able to replace uh, Robert's voice. And Robert's moved on and, and done a lot of things. Uh, since there, then, and, and, and including writing for Fast Company magazine. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it happens. And I think these companies need to learn that in order to keep these awesome voices, these people with soul and caring for the customer, these companies need to listen to them and start learning from them. So if anybody has a question, this is a good time to ask. We have got six minutes left. Uh, and again, I, I'm, I'm not even a fifth of the way through the notes I took on the book. But I'm, uh, Tara, I'm really loving talking to you, and I'm really appreciative of your taking the time to do so. So um, uh, Miral M asks, what was the one thing you learned from writing this book? Was, it, was there one thing? Uh, there's, oh, there's many things. Well, I mean, I think, you know, ironically, um, uh, the one, the, the one thing that I learned was uh, uh, working with a publisher is uh, kind of uh, the antithesis to uh, how I preach to uh, work with my community. So uh, I actually put up a blog post, uh, I think shortly before the book came out on the shelves. Where I, you know, I publicly said that I, you know, I was having a fight with my publisher, and they wanted to, they wanted me to create a list of influential people to send my book to, and I said, oh, uh, well, I actually want to send the book to people that have been really supportive and are really excited to see the book come out, and they've given me ideas and helped me do research, the goodness of their hearts, and they're just really jumping at the bit to get the book, and I know they would blog, and my publisher said. But do they have you know more than five thousand readers? And I was like, I don't know. I don't really care if they have more than five thousand readers. They'll, but they're more likely to blog about this. And if I send it to the quote unquote influencers that you want me to send it to, they probably have a stack of books where waiting there to be read that they just can't get around to because they're so busy. But this group of people are excited about the book coming out, so we should send it to them. Because one a blog post going to five people is better than a no blog post going to five thousand people, <laughs> and 
you know, it's funny because I had just finished writing this book that was full of these sort of <laughs> ideas of like how not to be, you know, kowtowing to influencers and instead to be uh, embracing the community or rewarding community, being generous to the community. And yet we were still having this argument. So I don't know if that was uh, what the question was trying to allude to, but that was definitely a big lesson in the book. I think that also helps. One of the other questions someone asked earlier was, how many how many folks do you follow and how many follow you? And how long did it take? And I think that just goes to show, you know, it's not always the numbers. Yeah, for me, it's not the numbers at all. Um, I think, I've, I don't know, I might, might have checked a couple of weeks ago or seen a couple of weeks ago. I, know, I never checked my numbers. I think I have over just over 30,000. But how many of those 30,000 are really engaged? How many have I interacted with <laughs> at any exactly. given time? Exactly. And uh, uh, you know, how many of those are robots? I'm not sure. <laughs> like, um, I I'm more concerned about the, the people that I interact with on a regular basis and have those conversations with. And when I put something out there that they're giving me really great, valuable feedback um, and helping me promote things that that matters to me. I mean, my, my, just my favorite place in the whole wide world is, is my blog and the conversations that happen in the comments there. You know, Twitter is fantastic for a great back and forth quick uh, conversation, but if you want to get into the meat of, of a topic and get people really riled up and really Telling their personal story instead of a blog post. <laughs> so, Tara, quickly, who are you reading? Who am I reading? Uh, well, uh, I I actually uh, switched a while back um, to the advice of um, Doc Searles, who uh, is definitely one of my mentors. Um, he uh, said, uh, I think it was in 2006 or seven, uh, in a talk that he did, that he's no longer following people, he's following uh, subjects of interest. And so I did the same thing. So I, I follow uh, different terms. I follow um, uh, happiness and BRM, or vendor relationship management, which I'm really interested in right now, if you get a chance to look that up, do. Um, uh, economics. Um, uh, I I follow anything that's you know to do with women in technology, uh, entrepreneurship. I follow um, anything to do uh, with uh, community. So I got this boy. Those posts they started out really slow back when I started following them, and now that in my feed reader uh, I can't keep up to the amount of posts that are about uh, online communities, um, it's it's definitely been a huge growing um, area of, of business concern over the years. I'm also really uh, interested in some kind of, uh, you know, off topic, uh, not my regular sort of fair like uh, studies of the brain, um, and that, and Kathy Sierra, another one of my mentors and heroes, turned me on to you know, brain studies and brain in, in psychology, um, and how the brain uh, actually uh, works and why we react 
certain ways with things and found out what an amygdala was and that sort of thing. So, you know, these uh, quite often I find new posts being linked to from posts that I'm already like hitting because of these keywords. So nobody in particular, um, but I do, uh, you know, I do enjoy um, some different subject matter. And I was recently actually turned on to a couple of different blogs that I have added to my feed reader. One that's not active, doesn't seem anymore, but I've been reading back through her stuff. Um, and oh, I, mean, I don't want to look, open up another panel because I might um, slow this down. But basically it's, uh, uh, I think it's uh, Confessions of a Homeless Person. Anyways, it was, it's a brilliant story of this uh, young woman who had, um, you know, she has a, a degree. I think she might even had a master's degree, and she, you know, she, she talked about getting a job, and then through the economic crisis, she lost her job, and she didn't really have a very good family unit uh, support to fall back on. Uh, her mom had mental illness, and uh, she ended up homeless. And uh, so it's it's this riveting story about um, you know, surviving homelessness and still working and um, looking for work and that sort of thing. And then uh, I also uh, was turned on to uh, Gary ha Hamill's uh, blog on the Wall Street Journal.com, rwsj.com, who uh, really uh, Whose, whose business theories just uh, really make me go hurrah and um, are totally in line with you know the, the work that I'm trying to push forward. He had a recent post um, about putting the soul, I think it's the soul back into business um, that just absolutely uh, delighted me. So you know those are those are some of the things that I'm reading and looking at these days. But you know what? I I also like books. I love books, and I read a lot of them. And I uh, um, read a brilliant one recently by a woman named Bridget Brennan, uh, "Why She Buys," um, talking about uh, the growing influence of uh, female shoppers and really interesting stuff and stories. Tara, it, we've passed the hour, and you've been really generous with your time. I'm going to give you. I'm clapping for you. Uh, we share a, a love. It sounds like Teresa as well of brain books. Dan Coyle was on last night and his book The Talent Code was really wonderful and he'd probably enjoy that as well. But thank you for coming tonight. Well, thank you for having me. This has been great and this hour went by way too fast. And fortunately, good thing you cut me off at an hour because I could have probably kept going. Well, you do have a life and you have a son in the other room who needs some non-halo attention. Non attention. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, that all good luck with that with me. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to put up the uh, our thank you, thank yous to Learn Central and to C Bloom and Associates. C Bloom sponsors my book habit. So, like Tara, I love books, and and they pay for my books. So much, much appreciated, Charlene and her gang. And uh, thank you, Tara. Tara, we're going to let you go. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you again. Have a great night. Okay. Good night. Good night. Appreciate it. Appreciate it.
And Kara, when you're ready, just close the window out. You're welcome to just close the whole program down, or you can uh, go up to file and exit to exit the program. So uh, tomorrow night, James Paul G., Thursday, Shell Israel, and lots more fun coming up. I actually have to go. Um, can't have a post-show chat tonight because I'm uh, headed out to travel tonight. So thanks for coming, everybody. And thanks to Tara again for uh, just a terrific, terrific book, um, one that I know is going to uh, be, be significant in, in my own ventures. Thanks and good night. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks, Teresa.